All right. I know we have 900 things we should be working on, but we, we have to continue on on this whole idea that we are justified by faith, judged according to works, right? Justified by faith, judged according to works. That's the way we're summarizing the problem, and then we're trying our best to resolve it. All right, so I don't want to do a massive amount of review, but let's do this. Um, the, we are looking at four different views in order to try to find a solution to how the Bible can seem to clearly teach that we are justified by faith, but at the exact same time teach that we're all going to be judged according to our works. Now, there is an underlying theological time bomb waiting to explode. No one has asked any questions yet about it. I've, I've been waiting, um, but I think view number two is going to trigger the time bomb, and then it's, it's, it's going to be ugly. Stacy said I did, okay, but I'm like, well, they didn't ask me. So, um, but, uh, so we'll see what happens. But let's, so we've, we've looked at one view, all right? Now, there's a lot more we need to cover in that view. In fact, I think there's like 400 pages in the book. I think that's what it feels like, dedicated to all the different objections to the view, and then the different writers write their response to the view. But, but at some point, we have, we, we're, what we're going to try to do tonight is move on to view number two. But I want to summarize view number one to the best of my ability, try to remind everyone of the major issues with it, and then we'll move on to view number two. We may have to come back to some of those things, but we've, you know, we, we can't turn this into a 20-year study because, I mean, if you think about it, for 2,000 years, Christians still haven't figured out an answer. Everyone thought you had an answer, but your answer was broken whether you understood it or not. It, so we're, we're kind of realizing that. So let's do this. What, how, what was view number one? but not at the final judgment. All right. View number one is that Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, but not at the final judgment. All right. Now, this view requires what? At least two judgments. At least two judgments. And um, uh, there's a strength to it because it does give you this idea, okay, judged according to works, right? But I'm justified by faith. And lost people being judged according to their works makes perfect sense. Why? Because they're not, uh, they're not justified. They're not co- you know, their, their sins are not covered in the blood of Christ. It sounds good. And 1 Corinthians 3 is a major like, boost to that idea, right? Okay. But Sunday night, I was not happy with the message at all Sunday night, but I went ahead and posted it because you know, I didn't want to have to try to re- re-preach that one as well. But we, we realized... Once they started getting into some of the objections, there's a couple of problems. And what was the big problems that we discovered in regards to this view? What were the big problems we discovered Sunday night? There were two chapters of these problems. Does everybody remember where the problems were found? Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25, right? All those lists of, par- well, there's, that starts with uh, the account, if you, want, if you have your Bible open, with Matthew chapter 24. First, it starts with this whole discussion about the signs of the end. How does it relate to possibly 70 AD? Does it relate to the end of the world? And we have that verse in Matthew 24, 13 that says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved 
which brings up this idea of perseverance. Now, we're not, we had no problems with this one because there's no way I'm going to make an argument about salvation or judgment in relation to Matthew chapter 24, 1 and following, because we, we, don't, we, we even have a hard time arguing today amongst Christians trying to figure out, wait, is this related to 70 AD? Is this related to the tribulation? Is it related to both? Which part is which? If it's related to 70 AD, well, yeah, if you endure until the end, you're going to be saved. Saved from what? Physically dying. That could be speaking of a physical salvation and, and physically enduring, right? right? I mean, there's a million different ways. So we, that's, that's, an, that's a wrong passage to pull out to try to disprove a, doctor, a doctrinal position. Does that make sense? I mean, that's a questionable verse. But when we went on in the parables that they did include in the objections, what did we discover in the following parables in Matthew 24 and 25. We had servants that seemed to be called servants, right? Maybe wicked servants. You had the ten virgins. You had these individuals that seemed to indicate possibly being saved. And then what happens to some of them at the end of the parables? Well, okay, let's go through Let's just go through them really quick, okay? Okay. In Matthew uh, 24, if you'll note, you had, uh, if you look at verse 48, but and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my, my Lord delayeth and is coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunken. Okay, he's, here's someone who's referred to as a servant. He's called a wicked servant, right? He starts doing all these things because he doesn't think the Lord's going to return. And then what happens? The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and an hour that he is not aware of. And he shall cut him. Now, some, and I I, I posted at least an article that dealt with this. Um, Some immediately believe that means death and that's how we ultimately interpreted it. But that doesn't quite make sense if you read the rest of the verse. And he shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites where there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I guess, I guess it could translate that. He kills them and then puts them in hell, right? So we, I posted an article that a lot of people say, well, the weeping and gnashing of teeth does not necessarily have to refer to hell. So this could just refer to he's going to issue some kind of punishment and he's going to feel shame and grief for it. Now, that would be a radical reinterpretation of the phrase because typically when we say weeping and gnashing of teeth we immediately assign it to hell so but you get the idea now immediately that causes a problem wait wait a minute right if this person is a true servant right well wait he's clearly being judged according to his works and what's going to happen to him placed in hell so that destroys that this judgment just occurs at the rewards judgment that's not a reward that's Hell, and didn't we not find that uh, that same idea and uh, the following uh, parables as well? Yes, does everybody remember? Okay, uh, you got the the the, uh, the ten virgins, and what happens to uh, some of them? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Remember they uh, they the uh, well, and when they came to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were ready and went in with him to the marriage door and shut the door. Afterwards came also the other virgins. Look at Matthew uh, twenty five eleven. Uh, but he answered and said, "Verily I say unto you, I know you not." 
Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or, uh, nor the hour where the Son of Man cometh, for the kingdom of heaven is as a far man. And then, so, but the main thing is he says, I know you not, seeming to imply that they were not saved. Okay, well, wait a minute. Were they never saved? Were they not saved? Like it raises all these, these questions. Then we have the uh, parable of the um, talents, correct? Okay. And what happens at the end of this? Yeah, remember? Now, that was in Luke. Remember in this one, what happens? For, uh, for, uh, yeah, he cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You get the idea? All right. In other words, these parables came in like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So what's our only option? What, what are our two options to do with these parables? They teach a judgment according to works, but the works uh, determines what? Heaven or hell, not reward. All right, that causes a problem. What's another way we could interpret these parables? That none of these people are saved. So therefore, then it goes, okay, wait a minute. To truly be saved, you have to do A, B, C, D, E, which then almost makes it a works-based issue. Now, just describing that, there's a theological time bomb that we walked right past that no one yet has caught on to, but there's one that, like, it's waiting, and view number two, we're, gonna, we're, we're going to see it. All right? So you ever want to see how this causes problems for view number one? If it wasn't for all, and, and that's just, remember, there's all kinds of other verses that raises more problems. Uh, if we just teach view number one without looking at the other problems, it sounds good, doesn't it? And, and the reason I taught view number one for those first two hours in a p- very positive way is I want you to show you how easily you can be manipulated in a sermon. A pastor presents one view, it sounds good, and you say, amen, neglecting passage after passage after passage after passage. You cannot fall for that. You cannot fall for that. You've got, when you're dealing with it, and, and again, and you, and you always know, and, and I'm going to offend any pastors who hear this, but I don't care, the pastors who preach these little sermons where they cover a major issue like this in 34, 35 minutes and offer you an answer, they are lying to you, they are manipulating you, and you should not tolerate, because there's no way you can cover this issue in 34 minutes. There's just no way. That's the first sign you're being manipulated. You're like, wait a minute. We just solved a problem that for 2,000 years no one can agree on, and you did it in 34 minutes. You are either the smartest man in the history of Christianity or you just flat up not doing your job from the pulpit. It's that simple. All right? Because didn't view number one sound good for the first two hours Sunday morning? And then Sunday night, we kind of walked away going, oh, that, that didn't quite work. And we didn't even read the you know, 300 pages of objections that are still waiting. Right? So... But I, I, I like view number one because it does seem to try to help me out. But let's see what we do. So let's go to view number two, all right? I, there's a lot more I could say about that, but I just want to at least give us some kind of summary and get there. So again, what is view number one? Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, not at the final judgment, all right? It sounds good. However, there are all these parables and passages that seem to imply that works are necessary and that people will be judged according to works and that judgment will determine not a reward, but heaven 
or hell. All right? Now, you could argue that all those people in these parables are not saved, which they would been, then be judged according to their works, right? True? Right? Now, we'd have to go back and see if that works because the language in some of them really make it sound like they're saved. You know? So, right. What about him? That's an argument you could try to make. I don't know if the language of the text would actually work, but that's, a, that's something you could try to say. That's, a, that's an argument you could try to make. No, but the, the person of Luke 19, the servant, he, yeah, he just got a reward taken away per se. Yeah, he, he, just the citizens are judged. So, so you, you know that. And again, the view, built the, the view number one built their argument on Luke 19 and ignored those others. And then when the other objections come, you're kind of like, oh. So there may be a workaround. We'll see. And put it this way. Any workaround to any of these views are not, is not going to be perfect. There is no, if there was a perfect answer, we wouldn't have 2,000 years of disagreement. All right. All right. Let's go to view number two. Are you ready? Oh, boy. This one is going to throw a, this is just going to explode here in a minute. It's going to be ugly. All right. Here we go. View number two. I'm going to state the view as they state it. Even the author of this view acknowledges that his, his title for his view is basically confusing, all right? But that's what he wrote, so I'm going to read it. Here we go. You ready? View number two. Justification apart from and by works at the final judgment works will confirm justification. All right? I'm going to read it again. Justification apart from and by works, at the final judgment, works will confirm justification. Now, the second part of that I understand. It's a typical view. Works are going to confirm whether you are justified or not. That first part's a little confusing, is it not? Justification apart from and by works. At the final judgment, works will confirm justification. That's almost an acknowledgement that this view is saying that what is required for justification. Right. Okay. So we have to understand this. All right. Everybody ready? Okay. Everybody got that title? Let me read it again. It, it, uh, it, uh, it is. Right. But he, the author even acknowledges it's a little confusing. All right. But there, there's a reason why he wrote it that way, because I think he's trying, I think he understands, look, people who, who actually study these problems understand simple answers, answers don't work. Pastors who preach simple answers, if they've bothered to study the problem at all, they know there are no simple answers, and they're lying to everyone who listens to them preach. It's that simple. Now, if you've never studied the problem, then you think it's good. Well, then why is the pastor not studying the problem? That, that raises another issue. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we, I'm, I don't even know if I want to go here, but here we go. I should say up front, this is the author speaking, I should say up front the title of this article is a bit misleading. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. 
For I am not restricting myself to justification, but will also consider the role of works with regard to salvation. Does anybody know what he just did there? Nobody caught it? Okay, I will repeat it. Okay. I should say up front the title, I should say up front for, uh, the title of this article is a bit misleading. For I'm not restricting myself to justification, but will also consider the role of works with regard to salvation. Do what? Okay, very good. All right. Now, here's an important here's an important question. Is justification the same as salvation or do we define them differently? Now, this gets to a very important theological question. If I would give you a blank sheet of paper and said write down your definition for uh, justification, or write down your definition for salvation, would they be the same definition? Now, these are basic Christian words. And again, this is what drives me sometimes crazy with Christianity is Christians run around using words. And then when push comes to shove, they can't define the words in which they're using, which is what, then that should, is a very good indicator that you should not be using those words. And if you can't use the word justification and salvation, I don't even know why you call yourself a Christian, right? Because they're kind of basic to your faith, right? But it raises a very important theological question. Are they the same or are they different? Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Okay. But I want you to realize, right there, we just stepped on the bomb. Not because he's separating them, but because he's bringing up the issue, he's getting ready to bring up the issue and how we define. And if we, how you define justification, I'm going to argue the way you define justification almost without exception is going to blow up more than one of these views. It may blow up all of them. So, well, I'll read and then we're going to come back to this. We're not going to get far in this view because this is going to become the issue, right? Here we go. This is what he says. Justification and salvation don't mean the same thing. Of course, they are closely related. Though space is lacking to defend the definitions offered here, he doesn't have the time to defend his definitions, but he's going to give us some definitions. Okay. No, he doesn't. He, this author only has one view. He doesn't have the whole book. So he's got it. In other words, the publisher says, okay, each author has so many, only so many words for your view. All right. Here we go. Uh, This is his definition of justification. Are you ready? I define justification as being acquitted before the divine judge. Those who are justified are declared to be not guilty before God. That again, I define justification as being acquitted before the divine judge. Those who are justified are declared to be not guilty before God. Period. Now he's going to add something in a minute, but let's stop right there. 
All right, what are the key elements to his definition of justification? Number one, what would be the first key word? Acquitted, okay, right? And what does that mean? Okay. Anybody got a, a dictionary on their phone? Let me see if you get internet. Yeah, just see. If you have, if you have one. Just we can throw in a dictionary definition at this point if we have one. Okay, free of a criminal charge, all right? All right, because he receives the charge of being not guilty, right? Now, that doesn't necessarily say innocent. It's just saying you're acquitted from punishment. You're going to escape punishment, all right? Those who are justified are declared to be not guilty. Therefore, he's following the idea of being acquitted before God. Now, what is not included in his definition of justification? Ah, now, this is where we're going to get to an issue. Everybody got the Westminster Confession of Faith? Should be in the back of the Trinity Hymnal. Now, the minute, I, the minute we just said that about justification, everybody here should have just groaned and went, oh, no, because that's the bomb. That just exploded and you didn't even realize it. Find the chapter on justification. I believe, I don't know what number it is. It's 11? Yeah, okay, 11. Now, do what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah, big difference between infusion and imputation, right? Okay, right. But here we go. But Protestants define it different as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, this book is going to have Protestant views here, so there, there'll be a Catholic view coming up somewhere. Okay, all right. So everybody ready? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to be reading from the London Baptist. It may be a little different. I don't think it'll be as different as it ended up being when we were looking at the one on the scriptures and it was all completely different. I don't think it'll be that different. So here we go. Chapter 11 of Justification. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them. Does everybody see that? Everybody see the infusion part? That's a direct relation to Catholicism. It's a rejection of Catholicism. So not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins... And by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness but by imputing Christ's 
active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Now stop right there. That is boom. That right there. This whole problem, this creates an entire new problem. Either we have to change our definition of justification, which nobody even considered, or we have to find a solution to, wait a minute, justified by faith, judged according to works, we have to find a way to make that work with this definition of justification being a part of it. Now I want you to think about it. According to this definition, what occurs in your justification? Okay. Now, the definition provided by the Westminster and London Baptists. What occurs in your justification? What is imputed to you? Christ's righteousness. Involving two kinds of obedience. His active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience was he kept what? All the law, perfectly. His passive obedience involves his death. All right. Of all of that, all of his... So all the law, every law in the Bible, I, I get the imputed righteousness of his active obedience. He kept it all. And I'm declared righteous, not because of what I can do, but because of what he has done. We all preach it that way. Now, if we all preach it that way, please tell me, why then, let's say we make an argument that, hey, your works is the evidence that you're truly saved. Why do I need works as evidence when I'm saved? Because if I'm justified, what saves me? Then imputed righteousness, not what I do. I don't have to do anything. Because I stand, how many works have, how good are my works before God? There, oh, no, 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 listen, think about it. Yes, my works, my practical works, but what works am I accredited to my account? The perfect works of Christ. So when, when he sees me, does God see my works? Sees the, wor- the, uh, the active obedience of Christ is imputed to my account. So Christ fulfilled all the law. Guess who fulfilled all the law? Me and him. So what difference is if I, oh, your works, you don't have enough works. Well, wait a minute. So if I, I have to change, I have to change my definition. You see, his definition left a lot out, did it not? Now, I respect this. Because here's what happens. Many Christians want that definition of justification, but then still say you have to have works because works will prove whether you're saved. Well, I have all the works I need. Because his active obedience is imputed to my account. So what works do I need to prove anything? Well, you've got to have works to prove it. So wait a minute. So Christ's work, so Christ's imputed righteousness is not sufficient. You see where this, you see that, that that's a, that just almost blows up some other views. Now, wait a minute. Now, 
That's, that's because we are assuming this definition is the right one. We have a presupposition built into it, right? That's way, that, our presupposition is that the London Baptist, Westminster, pretty much all Christians who've ever defined, all Protestants who've ever defined justification, if they have any meaningful definition, that's how we describe it. Imputed righteousness. I mean, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, really the difference in the Protestant Reformation. Everybody wants to get caught up in all this other stuff. It's between infused and imputed. Infused, I have to cooperate. I'm going to have to work. Imputed. Here's the problem. If that's true, then how can I be judged according to my works? Unless my works have nothing to do with my salvation, they only have something to do with my reward. That can't have anything to do with my justification. So either now we're forced with a different problem. If if this def if this def right if this definition of justification is right right then there's no way when we talk about I'm going to be judged according to my works I, the only view that would work with this definition unless I'm missing something theologically would be I cannot be judged according to my works for salvation because I have the imputed works of Christ to my account so we could only deal with my Reward, which is completely separate from my salvation, which would be view number one. View number two is going to try to make an argument that works is evidence of my justification. Why not? My, my works can't be evidence of my justification because what's the evidence of my justification? The active and passive obedience of Christ, which is imputed to my account. In fact, that it's imputed means I didn't do anything, can't do anything. Now, that's not an argument that we should we should do something, but the point is you can't come along and go, wait, wait, okay, okay now. All right, Bobby, God's going to judge you. I need to see your evidence. Uh, if, if that definition of salvation, of justification is right, Bobby would say the only evidence you need is the active and passive obedience of your son, which is perfect. Let me in, okay? I'm good to go. So what's getting ready to see? Here's what happens: people accept view, solutions to this problem without realizing they have they're actually contradicting their definition of justification. Everybody see how that works? I was hoping someone here would catch this when I when I kept bringing up all these problems. I was hoping someone to say, "Wait a minute! Our de- definition of justification precludes all of these views." And then I would have been like, you are genius. No, nobody here was even close to that. Okay. Yeah, 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 whatever. Okay. Well, right, but, but you, what you had to realize is what, what definition of justice. So, so really the issue is how do you define justification? Now, here's, here's the logical, what's the logical fallacy here, Sarah? I, 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 I put her on the spot. The logical fallacy is we have to presuppose our definition and then judge the views based on our definition. So we assume our definition is right, judge any other view according to our definition, and therefore our definition of justification becomes the standard. Right now you get into circular reasoning and all kinds of other um, pro- logical problems. We could go through all kinds of other problems. Okay. 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 You know, that's, that's what... Uh, yeah. So...
Yeah, this, that's, that's an issue. How do, we, how do we define it? But I want you to note, his definition was very, his definition was very uh, short, was it not? All right. Now let's go back to the book. So everybody understands how the definition of justification is key to this argument. Everybody got that? Is there any confusion? If you're, if you're confused, please don't be embarrassed. Ask, because I want to make sure we're on the same page. Well, yeah, I mean, well, uh, you, you can't have a view that contradicts your definition of justification. In other words, you're limiting yourself. So either you have to change your definition of justification, then you have to pick a view that would be consistent with your new definition. When you read view number two and you listen to his definition of justification, you're kind of like, there's something he's missing out. He, all he's got is we're acquitted and we're, and we're, we're, we're declared not guilty has nothing to do with being declared righteous. That's a, whole new, uh, that's a whole new element because if I'm declared righteous and his righteousness is imputed to my account, what, I don't need works to prove that because the whole point of it is it's not based off works. It's not based on anything I do. Isn't that the whole part of the definition there? It has nothing to do with me. It's his active and passive obedience being imputed or accredited to my account. Well, if it's accredited to my account, why do I need something? It would be like, what do you need? Right. Well, or if I have to do something to prove. Like, like the point is, is you're, you're like, if it's accredited to my account, right, what else do I need? Do I need evidence that it's been accredited to my account? That seems more like, hey, I'm going to give you some righteousness. Now you go cooperate with it because at the end you're going to have to prove what you did with it. That definition doesn't say I have to do anything to prove that I have it. It's the point is I don't do anything. It's accredited to my account. Like you can't, you see the contradiction on the evidence view. And, and, and that's why he, he's already hinted at the, what, what is his view about a works. That's an evidence so what did he immediately change at the beginning? A definition of justification that may be able to allow that. And see, these are the theological... See, theology is very nuanced in your study, right? You, you grab on to one thing of theology, right? Like, because here's what we do. We, have, we tend to study theological issues not linked together, but separately, Right? Okay, so when you look at it separately, you're like, oh, that makes, so, that makes such good sense. That makes such good sense. I got it. I got it. Good to go. But, but when it, whatever you believe, you have to keep it in mind when you go look at something else. And it's sometimes hard to do that. It's kind of what happened when we were talking about uh, the New Covenant. Remember, when we were doing the reading in Jeremiah, and I read the New Covenant, I'm like, wait, man, he's saying Israel. He's saying Israel. Now, I, I know from other, other areas I'm supposed to just discount this being Israel. Well, all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute. If I don't, well, that falls apart. That falls apart. So then, then I try to put them all together, and I'm like, okay, we gotta, I got to change something. That's, it's hard to do that, though, because when you're, when you're studying one area and you move on to the other, you just sometimes are studying them as disjointed disciplines. But they're not disjointed. It's all connected, and it's all got to make sense. So I can teach you on justification, right? I can teach you on justification, and you're all like, yes, imputed, God did it all, 
you know, his uh, passive and active obedience is accredited in my account. Beautiful, wonderful teaching. And then later, I'm teaching you on judgment. I'm like, hey, your works are going to be are going to prove whether you're saved or not saved. That's how come God can judge you according to your works. And you'll just say, amen, because it, it's hard for you to put the two together. Because when we started looking at this, no one raised their hand and go, wait a minute, what about our definition of justification? That should have been the first question everyone asked. When we read Romans 2.6, everyone should have said, wait a minute, doesn't Romans 2.6 preclude a different definition of justification? That is what, that's what everyone should have said. Okay. This view Well, this view, like, and here's the thing. If you would have been reading this view, I don't know if anyone would have caught it. But as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, how clever. Let's let's give a a simple definition. Like, you know, hey, I don't have enough space to to go into great detail about justification. Well, if you're going to give me a definition of justification, it's got to include all the key elements. And either our definition, now our definition could be wrong. Please note, we're presupposing our definition is right. But what I want you to realize, he is at least acknowledging you're going to need a different definition for his view to work. Or at least that's the indication so far. Everybody got that? All right, let's, I'm going to read this part again and put it all together. The author says, I define justification as being acquitted before the divine judge. Those who are justified are declared to be not guilty before God, period. In addition... Justification is understood in this essay to be an eschatological reality. Hence, the verdict of not guilty, which believers receive now by faith, is confirmed at the final judgment before the whole world. All right. So he's saying that there is a present reality, you're declared not guilty, but it's a future reality where you're going to be declared not guilty before the whole world. Okay. No problem here, but where do works come in? Now, I think what he's getting ready to do is I'm declared justified now, and what's going to confirm it in the future is your works, which requires a complete change of your understanding of justification. Does that make sense? That's where I think he's going, right? Yes, yes, it does. Now, I don't, I don't get caught up in that too much because I believe, um, you know, you can have one judgment. You, you can make it work in a one judgment system in this way. Hey, if you're a Christian at that judgment, your works are going to be judged for reward and, and everyone else will be judged based off salvation. You could make it work in a one judgment system, but typically the, uh, those, who don't, those who don't mention a rewards judgment believe in one judgment. In fact, the predominance of Christianity only believes in one judgment. Okay? The, the creeds seem to infer one judgment. The church fathers basically understood one judgment. You really, where, where, what, what, what system really came up with the idea of multiple judgments? Dispensationalism, right, yeah. So, but, you know. Right, yeah. It doesn't ultimately matter because I think you, I mean, you, technically you can make it work. I mean, no one passage tells you everything that occurs at the judgment, right? You've got multiple passages that speak of judgment and it seems to be like, wait, these are being judged on how, how they treated Israel if we read the one passage that way. The judgment of nations, okay, wait, 
You see all these different things, you're like, that all sounds different. But I guess theoretically it could all occur at one judgment. Does that make sense? So I don't get too caught up in that debate. All right. Now, remember he said that justification and salvation are two different things? All right. Everything he just said there dealt with uh, justification. This is what he says. Salvation, by contrast, means that one has been rescued or delivered. Here the focus is on being rescued from God's wrath or punishment on the last day. All right, so he draws the distinction. Justification is being acquitted, right? Being declared not guilty, and salvation deals with being rescued from God's wrath. He thinks they're linked together, but he, he draws a little bit of a distinction. Okay, I'm not going to get caught up in a problem with that. I, I'm not going to worry about that right now. Uh, let's let him speak for himself. I don't want to, I don't want to say, I don't want to say, I think, I think this view almost demands that you can't have assurance, but I don't, there's lots of people who hold to this view who try to argue you can't. I mean, MacArthur tries to argue you can have assurance where, where in reality, his view would demand I can't until, I mean, I guess it can only, I can only have assurance on the days that I can pass his 11 point test, which if I look at that 11 point test, I'm never going to be, have assurance. So. But, but, right. So, but, but we'll be, uh, but we'll be fair and let this person, th- this person describe it for themselves. He goes on to say, I have attempted to show elsewhere that justification is a soteriological term. And thus, justification and salvation both address the question of the human being standing before God on the day of judgment. Right? I got no problem with that. I mean, everyone believes it's a soteriological term. If you want to believe it's an eschatological term, okay, fine. It does have a future implication. So I'm not going to get caught up in that one way or the other. He goes, so it's it's going to deal with a human being standing before God on the day of judgment. Whether one stands in the right before him or is saved or whether one is condemned before him or destroyed. And, And that's what it's going to determine. When we stand before God, you're either going to be saved or you're going to be destroyed. Okay, I got no problem with that. Yeah, well. You could argue, you know, do we use that word or should we use that word? But that's different. Okay. I should also say that I'm not trying to be overly technical in the use of the words apart from and by. Remember in his title, right? See, he's not trying to be technical. Okay, that's good because um, and th- theological students would start going, wait a minute, apart, by, by. Okay, well, but fine, that's good. He's, he's telling us not to do so. He goes on to say, in the essay below, I also say that we are not saved or justified by works. Right? So the prepositions in the title are not used technically. The meaning of the title should not be gleaned by the prepositions, but by the content of this essay. So in other words, I gave you a title. Don't, don't, don't try to figure out that what I mean by the title. You've got to read everything I have to say. And I can understand that. Um, you know, uh, if, if you give points in sermons, you're always afraid as a pastor that everyone's going to remember, like, the point you gave. Like, here's number one, and they're not going to remember everything you said in regards to the point. And then they walk away thinking you meant A, and you're like, you didn't, did you, you just wrote down what I said when I gave you the point. You didn't listen to everything I said about the point. That's always a danger in theology and theological things. So I understand his concern here, but all right. Another preliminary word should be added. Given the space constraints of this essay, I will mainly limit myself to the Pauline letters 
and to James. At the close of the essay, I will briefly refer to other texts since they speak to the issue before us as well. But there is no pretense here of offering an exhaustive word on the topic. Now, please note, every author is stuck with the same problem. The other, the other, author, other author basically limited himself to Luke 19, and we criticize that. But, I mean, there's no way to be exhaustive on this topic. That Each author would have to write 12 volumes. And I just want you to realize that's what makes me so mad when I listen to these sermons being preached by pastors thinking that they can come up with an answer for this in 34 minutes. That's not an exhaustive study. And I know what they'll say. Well, you can't do that from the pulpit. Well, when is it going to be done? Yeah. Well, it's not even... Yeah it, yeah, it doesn't even happen in seminary. In seminary, you're just being, remember I, remember I told you, you learn theology, you use theology, and then you do theology. Seminary is not the time to do it. You're just learning it, right? You're just trying to figure out, okay, what should I believe? Then you start using it. At some point, you have to get to doing it. Doing it is an exhaustive thing. Well, the average Christian has to first learn it. Then you've got to try to move them to use it. And then at some point, I think you have to move them. Okay, now it's time to do theology. And that's what we're doing. But it takes time to get people there. Does that make sense? But it's got to happen from the pulpit. It's got to. I mean... Because you're, when are you going to be, you don't have time to be reading all these books, figuring all this out. So, you know what I'm saying? You've got a, you've got a life. Now, you've got you to work. You've got things you have to do. But, so the church has to do it. Now, I understand it makes the church feel weird, but it shouldn't make church feel weird because we, according to the Bible, the purpose of the church is to equip saints. It's not supposed to be worried that that lost person is going to walk through the door and get all confused. You're, you're supposed to be leaving here ministering to those lost people. You're supposed to. Right. Now, when they come in, yeah, if, if we preach on salvation, then we pray that God would work in their life and, and save them. But the church is, was never designed for lost people. That's never what it was designed for. All right, here we go. My goal is to take, sound, uh, take soundings from Paul and James and a few other New Testament texts so that we can navigate our way through the controversy on the role of works and justification. Finally, I am assuming that all the letters in the New Testament are authentic. So the author is going to assume that the letters in the New Testament are authentic. And you're all looking at me like, who doesn't? A whole lot of Protestants don't believe they're authentic. Okay, so like, there's a lot of people don't, right? Uh, You know, what do I need to give you? Volume 1 of the Fundamentals, Chapter 1 on Higher Criticism. They begin to question dating and authors of all the letters. Okay, right, right. So, yeah. But he's assuming they are authentic. Even if some dissent from this opinion, the argument would not be affected greatly as long as one believes that the letters in question are authoritative as Scripture. He's like, okay, I'm not going to get into an argument that all the letters of the New Testament are authoritative or authentic, but if, as long as you can agree that the ones he uses are authentic, then he's like, there shouldn't be a debate. All right. The structure of the essay is as follows. Here's, here's his structure. Here's how he's going to structure his argument. Number one, he's going to examine the text in Paul that teach that justification or salvation cannot be obtained by works. So what's the first thing he's going to look at? Paul's teaching that salvation cannot be obtained by works. That's the first thing he's going to demonstrate. 
is going to show us that salvation cannot be obtained by works. Right. He said justification or salvation cannot be obtained by works. All right, so what's the first thing he's going to look at? Paul's teaching that justification or salvation cannot be obtained by works. Everybody got that? Yes? Okay, good. Almost? Okay, good. Tell me when you do. Number two. He's going to look at text where works are said to be necessary for justification or salvation. Then he's going to look at texts of Scripture where works are said to be necessary for justification or salvation. Now, what do I admire about, about that? He's looking at both sides because he understands the, the confusion. I mean, the, I mean that's, the whole, that's the reason these problems exist. The Bible seems to teach both. How did we summarize it? Justified by faith, judged according to works. All right. He understands that that tension, it can't be denied. Anyone who reads the Bible can see it. And, and, and this, is what, this is what is so troubling to me. Anyone, any person who sits down and reads from Matthew to Revelation and cares about truth and walks into any church and starts raising their hands asking basic questions, they're not going to be welcomed and they're going to be basically kicked to the curb. To be accepted in most uh, churches, I'm sorry, Christianity almost demands, I, I, I don't, I, how can I say this? Christianity almost demands ignorance. It almost demands stupidity. It rewards stupidity. Don't question. Don't think. Just accept. And it should never be that way. If it's truth, it can handle any question. But that's the way it's always handled. You listen to these pastors and they just just act like there's not a question in the world. There's not a problem in the world. The Bible's just there to give you comfort. The Bible's just there to give you strength. And it's just like this, I don't even know, it's like some fairy tale land of Christianity. I mean, listen to all the sermons we've been posting from Abilene. I mean, I'm telling you, I listen to those sermons while drinking heavily. I mean, heavily, heavily. Okay, that's a joke for those listening online. I do not drink. Okay, but by the end of those sermons, I wish that I did. Okay. All right, so what's the second, second part of he's going to look at? He's going to look at all the texts where works are said to be necessary for justification and salvation. All right, so he's going to start with Paul. Then he's going to look at other texts. So point number one, he's going to use Paul, right? Then he's going to look at other texts. And then point number three, he's going to use the same outline that I just gave you in the book of James, He's then going to look at the book of James and he's going to show you that James seems to teach both as well. Hey, you're saved apart from works, however works are required for it. So he's going to, Paul, other text, James. So far, so good? This is what he says. It is imperative to reflect on both sets of text to achieve a balanced perspective. 
Amen, amen, amen. You have to reflect on both. Typically, if you go to church and it's taught, are you going to get both? No. No way. All right? Because if you try to do both, what happens? Your study in Romans comes to a screeching halt, and 12 years later, you're still trying to figure it out. But do you want to just get us, do you want an answer for Romans, or do you want to actually deal with, Deal with it. You got to deal with it. I mean, it's Romans brings up the problem. I, I warned you before we started. I warned everyone. I warned everyone it was coming. I told everyone you don't want Romans. It's a bad book. All right? Did you? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've never done it in thirty-five minutes. Okay, I can't get an introduction done in thirty-five minutes. Okay, all right. Here we go. Um, so it's imperative. I agree. Um, If we restrict ourselves to texts that say works are necessary for justification, or even if we focus on such texts, we will lack the necessary perspective for interpreting what Paul and James means. Within the constraints demanded by the format of the present work, both dimensions, justification apart from and by works, must be explored. All right? So he he, he uses justification apart from and by works. That's how he said it. How did we summarize it? Justified by faith, judged according to works. He's putting it, focusing on the justification aspect. We tried to separate the two just to say, because I didn't necessarily want to get into trying to come up with how we should define justification, but this view is going to force us into, wait a minute, do we need a new definition of justification? Right? He goes... uh, we must, both of these ideas must be explored and, um, and taken apart. Otherwise, the tension between both sets of statements may not be fully appreciated. I've tried to make sure you fully appreciate the tension that's in the Bible. I've tried my best to make you go, man, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. What's the answer? All right. He's going to conclude his essay. He's going to conclude his section with, a, uh, with something he's calling theological reflection. He's going to end his section with something he's calling theological reflection. Now, this is what he says about this section. I propose here a solution to the dilemma posted in the teaching of both Paul, James, and other New Testament writings, arguing, now this is what he's going to argue. He's getting ready to summarize his point. He's going to argue that works are necessary for justification, but they should not be considered the basis or foundation of justification. All right. Here's how he's going to argue. He's going to argue that works are necessary for justification, but they should not be considered the basis or foundation of justification. All right. Now make sure you see how he's doing this. This, this is a trick, but I, he's not, I'm, not, I'm not saying he's trying to play a trick, but I'm saying that he's, he understands that his solution is very, very complicated because here's what he's getting ready to do. He wants you to say that you do have to have works for what reason? As evidence. So if you don't have it, you're not saved. But that sounds like he's teaching justification by works. So he's got to work, he's got to draw this long explanation where he tries to account for all of it. So let me read it again where you see. All right. 
He is going to argue that works are necessary for justification. And you're like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like a Protestant. So you immediately get ready to reject it. But he says, works are necessary for justification, comma, and the next word, but they should not be considered the basis or foundation of justification. All right. They're necessary, but they're not the basis or foundation of. That sounds good, right? That, that's supposed to give you some kind of like, oh, okay, he's not a Catholic. It's not the basis or foundation of, they're just necessary. Now, how can they be necessary, but yet not the basis and foundation of? That's hard for me to wrap my mind. Like, how can they be? I have to have them, but they're not the basis or foundation of. Well, then, can I be justified without them? Right. So then why are they? Is there, Sarah, is there, is there in your mind, because I could be completely wrong here, do you see that saying they're not the basis and foundation of, does that, does that make it work with saying that they're necessary? Does that like resolves the problem? Or is it just kind of like. Right. And the foundation. Right. But works are necessary. And if they're necessary, isn't they, aren't they a part of the foundation and basis? I'm just having a hard time how you get around that from a, like a linguistic perspective. Or maybe my, you know, I think my reading comprehension is pretty good. But look what he does. I'm going to read this whole statement. He's going to argue that works are necessary for justification, but they should not be considered the basis or foundation of justification. Period. Instead, comma, they constitute the necessary evidence or fruit of justification. They're necessary. They're not the basis and foundation of it. However, they are necessary as evidence and fruit of. And, and what's the, what does that ultimately mean? If you don't have them, you're not justified, which then makes them bases. Right? I mean, I don't know what, like throwing in the word bases, I don't understand how that gets you somehow magically off the hook. Hey, you're good to go. It, it's, if that doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't get it. Evident and constitute the necessary evidence of fruit of justification. Now, please note, while we're sitting there trying to figure out his little word game, what should you be saying? Wait a minute. I'm going to have to, if I go with this view, what is going to require? What's going to be, what's absolutely required to go with this view? A new definition of justification. Because you can't make works necessary if my justification is all about, okay, he just, uh, whom those he effectually calls, he freely, freely justifies. And involved with this justification is an imputation of his righteousness, an alien righteousness, not my own. And what is involved in that righteousness? The active and passive obedience of Christ that is now accredited to my account. What more do I need? What evidence do I need? In fact, what I, what I think they're, they're arguing for evidence of sanctification. That can't be evidence for justification. 
There is no evidence for that because justification doesn't even make me a better person. Justification just declares me to be perfect. It doesn't make me perfect. So you couldn't even argue that this... I don't even know how you can say that it's a fruit or necessary evidence of justification. It would have to be a necessary evidence of sanctification. Now, here's what happens if you're not careful. You And we've already talked about this before. You're going to merge justification, sanctification, glorification together. And in some ways, they're all... We, we link them together as well, right? If you're going to be justified... You have to be sanctified. If you're not sanctified, you're not... What did we just do? So, I, I, would, I would even challenge him from a theological perspective. He, he worded that wrong. They're not the evidence or fruit of justification. They're the evidence of sanctification. If we're going to separate them, to, like Protestants try to separate them. But when you put them to, to, together that way, you no longer separated them. Because I'm not justified unless I'm sanctified. But make sure you understand, for this view to work, what is required? You can't be adding this whole imputation of his righteousness. No, all justification is, I'm acquitted and I'm declared not guilty. Boom. And what flows from, uh, from that acquittal? Now I have to do something. To prove that I've been acquitted. I've got to do something to prove that I'm, that I'm not guilty. I've got to go live out something. Right? Yeah. And, and, that, and, the, and doing that is not the basis. Right? The basis is what Christ did. But all Christ did was just make me acquitted and not guilty. He didn't give me a righteousness. That, that changed. Now, that would, again... And the reason I'm going to argue that is because when we get into the second view, there's going to be a part we're just going to want to give up. We're just going to want to give up. We've got, we got, we got to pick one of these. We've got to pick one of these, right? Okay. Evidence, and, and, and that's the view that we, this church has operated on. We've operated under the idea of the lordship view. That's pretty much the way we've operated it. We may have not have fleshed it completely out, but we've operated under the view that, hey, if you're truly saved... You'll, you're going to prove it. And if you don't, then you're not. That's, I mean, that's the basic, it's the basic way most of us have operated to some level. And if you've rejected that, then you've believed in what would be called easy believism or the free grace way, which we have rejected. Well, to go with this view, what I want you to require is, is when we were doing that, we were not being consistent with our definition of justification. Now, MacArthur would argue all day with us and was like, absolutely not. I'm being consistent. And I'm going to be like, I don't care what MacArthur says. You're not being consistent when you tell me that I, I, uh, my justification is based purely on the imputed righteousness of Christ and I'm declared perfectly obedient. What, why do I need evidence? Evidence for what? When I stand before God, what should he be looking for? The righteousness he provides. And if he sees that, why does he need to see anything else? Because that would mean like, I get, I get it, and then I got to do something with it, which is literally the idea of an infused righteousness, not an imputed righteousness. So, so we're going to have to work on this view, but realize it. So, all right, so, what, so in view number one, what's its weakness? We'll end with this. What's the weakness of view number one? Yeah, but what, what, what's, yeah, we didn't go through every page of opposition, but 
Summarize what's the best opposition for view number one. Yeah, I mean, we, we got passages that seem to indicate that people are going to be judged by the works, and it's going to determine heaven and hell, not just a reward. All right. John 5 would be the best argument for that, right? Okay, well, Revelation 20 doesn't really hurt us much uh, because it, it just seems everyone at that judgment is going to hell. It doesn't seem like anyone's going to heaven. So, okay, so, so we're okay with it. John, when Jesus talks about it, uh, Romans 2, that creates a problem. Agreed? Okay, the parables, the problem with the parables is these, ten, these five virgins, the, the, the servant here, they seem to be going to hell. Are they going to hell because they didn't do enough good or they're going to hell because they were not saved. It comes up to how to interpret it. So there is some problems. No question. Everybody got to understand it. What's the strength of you, number one? We got judged according to works. Right? No question. And it, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 strongly seems to support that one. Now, there's other scriptures that seem to contradict it, but 1 Corinthians seems to get us, okay, that, that's, man, hey, you're actually gonna, 100% going to be judged according to works. It's going to be sad. It's going to be embarrassing. You're going to lose reward. You do not want that to happen. There's going to be shame. There could be weeping. Um, you don't want that. However, what does it actually 100% protects? Salvation by faith, grace, imputed righteousness. That, so view number one is great there. It's got some problems. View number two, it has a, a, a more a larger obstacle because it would literally, it seems, require a new definition of justification, which would, I don't even know how we would define it. I I mean, we would almost have to go with a definition at lack, about as short as his. I'm justified, it means I'm I'm acquitted and declared not guilty. That's it. I don't get any imputed righteousness. I don't, nothing. I have to work to prove it. Because remember, he was going to say, it doesn't get me saved, but I got to, but, but I know he's still requiring it to be there for salvation. I mean, no matter how you, no matter how much you try to say, well, I'm not saying you have to do it to be saved, but if I don't do it, I'm not saved. Then you're telling me after, and what they'll say, it's not works you do, it's works Christ does through you. Well, then that means I don't need to do anything. Well, if you don't do anything, then you prove you weren't saved because Christ would be doing works through you. So who's doing the work? It's Christ. Well, then I can just sit at home and drink, you know, a 40 and smoke a joint. I'm good. No, 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 no. If you're saved, God would work through you and that wouldn't happen. Well, he was working through David. He did some really bad stuff. So, and how come I got all those commands put off, put on, mortified? That seems to be placing the responsibility on me. And they're like, well, it is your responsibility, but God will work through. Okay. And that just becomes all convoluted and, and confused. So, but we'll, we'll, we'll let the view speak for itself. But I just want you to realize, when you get that definition of justification, guess what happens? No, no, if you go with our, the view of justification from the London Baptist, it really blows up some of these other options. And that, that's where I want you to, like, wait. Right, but, but I'm saying if you say that, well, right now, now, okay, I see what you're saying. Yes, if, if God's going to judge me according to works, it's going to be the works of his son. Now, is that what you're saying? Yeah, then they, absolutely. I got no problem with that. Judge the works of your son. 
They're perfect, and I'll get into heaven. Our definition of justification would allow for that. Right? So you could have judgment according to works, even without a reward. You could even put it for the salvation that way, if you, if you made it that Yeah, judge me according to the righteousness you gave me. Judge that righteousness as strict as you want to judge it, because it's never going to come up lacking, right? It's going to be perfect obedience. He kept the law, active, and, I mean, yeah, you could, you, could, you could state it. Now, you don't really have scripture that would necessarily justify that, but you could get around it that way, all right? So, right. Exactly, right. I'm saying, I'm saying that's a good argument. There's lots of verses that you'd have problems justifying it. But when you get into some of these definitions, you're almost going outside of scripture to even come up with some of these definitions, which is a whole different problem, all right? Okay, so... We got a good idea. We got view number one, view number two, right? View number two is, hey, uh, you need works, but you, you don't need works for the basis of foundation. However, you need them for evidence. Basically, number two is a very clever way of saying the evidence argument. That's really what it is. All right. Okay, so, all right, we'll stop. Oh, I don't want to stop because there's about a million other things we have to say, but we already well over an hour, so we'll stop. Look, we come before you this evening. Lord, I just thank you that we could even talk about this uh, here. There's some churches, if I started talking about some of these things, they wouldn't have a clue what we were even talking about. So I'm thankful that we can discuss these things. I pray that we continue to struggle. And I pray that, Lord, if our definition of justification is wrong in any way, shape, or form, please let us discover that truth and do whatever is necessary to have a biblical understanding of how you justified us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,